us. So Acts 26 and verse 30. Then the king arose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man, Paul, is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adamitrium, I practiced that, everybody. Thank you. <laughs> Which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea, from there we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There, was a, there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Sinitus. And as the wind did not allow us to go any further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salome. Coasting along, coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there, on chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northeast, and spend most of the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon the tempestuous wind, called the Northeaster, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Kadua. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing they would run aground off Syrtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. This is God's word. Amen and amen. You may take a seat. We joke that that's a very upbeat way to end this passage. All hope had been at last abandoned. All right. Hey, have you guys, how many of you guys out there are readers? You read? You read a lot? Not a, some hands. I, I appreciate that. I appreciate the honesty, too. Like, if you're not, you're like, no, I'm not really. You know, it's okay. I, I, read, I read portions of articles on the internet. That's the, you know, maybe that's, you're like me or something like that. Um, 
but if you're, if you've, re- I was not a reader growing up. I did not read a lot, obviously. I, I really think that I started to read once um, I heard the gospel and actually that God got a hold of my life, that it was one thing that he kind of kindled in me a little bit. And so, um, but I don't know if you've ever been reading in a novel where you're reading along, and I don't know what authors you might read, um, but you're reading along and the story's going just, just great, and then all of a sudden, the author, like, if you're reading Les Miserables, Victor Hugo's book, you're reading along, and this climax of the book where Jean Valjean saves his daughter's love interest and is carrying him, and then he launches into 100 pages about the Paris sewer system. Just what you were hoping for. Just what you were, just at the climax of the story. Or maybe you're a Tom Clancy fan. Maybe that's a little more your speed, right? And maybe you're reading along and you're reading The Hunt for Red October and the story's going along. And then all of a sudden it's 40 pages on nuclear submarine propulsion. And he just gets lost in the weeds or in his book, The Sum of All Fears, right at the the climax of the book. There's a nuclear, going to be a nuclear explosion. Then he goes into 40 pages about how a nuclear explosion works. You're like, what the heck? Well, we, ha- we have something like this today in the book of Acts. Because as I was reading along with this, you were like, okay, look, I, I don't know if I could pronounce all of those names. I don't even know if I pronounced all those names correctly. And we, if you've been following along in the book of Acts, the whole tone of the book changes. This is a sailing chapter. There's no other thing like it in the book of Acts. There's no other thing like it in the Bible. In the ancient world, we have some literature like this. But it's a book about boats and ports and sailing under the lees of islands, you know, like whatever that means, and ships and boats and tackle and gear and anchors and bows and sterns and rudders, language that has not been used up to this point in the book of Acts. And so this morning, really, I want to take a look at this this 27th of 28 chapters, this, this penultimate chapter in the book of Acts as we get to the end of the book, and just to make some observations and ask a couple questions. Why does Luke use this? Why does he kind of get lost in the weeds on the sea voyage? What can we learn from that? But also to, to kind of make note that the Apostle Paul, who we've been tracking so far from chapter 13 on in the book of Acts, and, and his t- bearing witness of what Jesus has done, that, that he finds some um, really unlikely allies along the way in this chapter. But also to ask the question, what is the role of a prisoner of Jesus on a doomed ship? Because I got news for you, this is a doomed ship. This is a doomed ship. And what does Paul do? What is is that about? And and, and we're going to ask the question because I got news for you too. It's not just Paul who's a prisoner on a doomed ship. We are in a world that is going nowhere fast. And what do we do as followers of Jesus on a ship that is not going anywhere good soon? What's our role in this culture? Maybe we could take some cues from the Apostle Paul. You guys with me this morning? All right, so let's get a little bit lost in the weeds, okay? We'll get there, but have we gotten to this point? Paul's been under house arrest in the the city of Caesarea in Israel. He just made his defense and borne witness to the governor, Festus, as well as the sitting king of Israel, Agrippa, and his sister, Bernice. And at the end of all that, and this is important, one of the reasons why we started with that, with, with that portion was because it's going to be important as we get to the end of the book. What, what was their verdict on the apostle Paul? Festus said, you're out of your mind. 
And, and Agrippa was like, are you trying to make me a Christian? But all of that to say, they realized, look, Paul is not, he might be out of his mind, but he's not guilty. And we see at the end of that that they said, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And that line is going to be important as we get to the end of the book and we ask the question, what is Paul's fate? What's his fate? And this was the last verdict that we heard about him. All right, so, and that's going to be in a couple of weeks as we get to there. All right, so let's talk about the sea voyage. And I know that since you're here, you're probably not here because of me or the worship team or whatever. You're here because of our maps, right? I know maybe you're not here because of the maps. But let's look at a map and let's talk about this, um, this, um, this sea voyage. Now, the sea voyage, as we get into Luke, Luke is going to get, Luke is going to use a lot of language that is, um, that might, we might miss a little bit of, because we are not first century seafarers, nor do we live by the Mediterranean. We might not understand where all of this is, but we're going to try to understand why does Luke include all of this material. So Acts 27, 2, it says, embarking in a ship of, of, of Adramitium, which was about to set sail to the ports along the coast of Asia. So what we find out is that after Paul is essentially acquitted, but he appealed to Caesar, so he's got to go to Rome. And the way this is going to work is coming out of Israel down here, by the way, using the laser pointer is always a little bit of a gamble because you get to see how caffeinated I am in the morning because I got to hold it steady. All right. So if we start down here, you're like, that's two cups of coffee right there. See, right. That, that's the, that's the gear. So you got to work it out. All right. Thank you, everybody. I'll be here all week. Okay. All right. So starting down here in Israel, there's Caesarea. And what they do is they get on a boat. It's a smaller boat. And in the ancient world, if you were reading this or hearing this for the first time, you would realize that what, what Paul was booked passage on by the centurion and his soldiers and these other prisoners was what they called a coaster. It was a boat that made its voyage by hugging the coast. It was smaller because it couldn't take the open sea. And so they, they decide that you could see a good, if you go from Caesarea to Sidon right there, that's about a day's journey. And that would have been kind of the way that they worked their way up the coast until they worked over to Cyprus, sailed in the lee of Cyprus. Just for those of you who are not seafaring folk, um, anybody know what a lee is? Lee is basically protection from the prevailing winds, okay? All right, you're like, no duh, Pastor Craig. All right, look, I'm just, I'm here for everybody, okay? I'm here for everybody seafaring or not. No knot tying by the end of this service. I don't know how to do any of that. Okay, so anyway, they sail up here, and everything, everything really is, you're in a coaster until you get up here, the southern coast of Turkey in this, in this, uh, uh, this port town of Myra in Lycia. Um, it came to a certain point, and they had to change ships because this ship, actually, it's interesting because the ship is actually from way up here off the map, way up by Troas. So this ship down in Jerusalem was a long way from home on a coaster. I mean, that's a, that's a long trip if you're just going to do some, some port jumping. But they have, to they, have to, uh, they have to change ships right up here. And the reason why it's right up here is this port is directly north of one of the largest cities of the ancient world, which is down here, the city of Alexandria. And that's where the Nile River Delta is. And so if you're in the Roman world, and on the Roman, you see, um, you see the boot of, the, of Rome, of Italy over there. And Rome had grown so big on the peninsula of Italy, on that boot, 
that they could not grow enough grain for themselves. They had to bring grain in from all over the Mediterranean in order to feed all the people that lived in Rome. And the, most, the place where most grain was, uh, was actually grown in the ancient world was down here on the Nile River Delta. And so what they would do is they would load up these large ships. We're going to find out later that Paul says, or that Luke says, that this ship that they're going to get on has about 270 people on it. That's bigger than a coaster, okay? That's big. That's a big ship. Um, and it, so you sailed due north to this port, and then you would get on this big ship that could handle the open waters, um, although we're going to find out that it really can't handle the open waters in, in storms as well as in the winter. But that's, that's where we're at when in verse in 27.5, when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. The centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy, and he put us on board. By the way, in the ancient world, in the Roman world, they did not have imperial ships that transported people. You had to book passage on a commercial ship. So they find this coaster, and now they find this big grain ship, and we're going to find out that it's a grain ship because the very last thing they throw off, the whole chapter, they're throwing stuff overboard. They throw off, they throw off all, the, all the stuff on board. They throw off all the tackle, and then the very last thing they throw off, if you read the chapter, what's the last thing they throw off? The wheat. That's the very last thing. That's what they're hoping to get. That's what they're hoping to keep their investment uh, uh, liquid in. And actually, no pun intended, thank you. All right, all right. You guys ready? So this is a large ship, um, and the last thing they give up before the wreck is the wheat. Now, here's the deal. Why, why does Luke go seafaring on us all of a sudden? And there's a couple of reasons why. And if you read ancient literature, literature from the first century, there's a couple, there's a couple of reasons why in narratives like this, somebody might include a seafaring tale. And the first is this. Oftentimes, history in the ancient world was a little bit sketchy. People would make stuff up. But if you could put in a seafaring narrative that was accurate, it let people know that you were on the up and up, that you had, you had walked, or rather, you had sailed the seas ahead of, that they, you, this, these were actual ports that people could go to and knew of in the order that they would have gone to. And so not everybody did sail, but you would hear the stories, and this would have given some credibility to the historical account. And so Luke, no doubt, is like, look, I'm a historian. I want people to trust what I'm saying, so I'm going to include this information and, and let people know that I'm, just, I'm not just making this stuff up. So Luke, Luke gives some, some, some evidence of the veracity of his account. The second reason why people include this is probably what you all would know. It's like, it's entertaining. Like it provides some drama. You're coming to the end of the book, and it's a 28-chapter book, right? It's long. Like if, if you're falling asleep during the telling or the reading of this, you get to the, last, the second to last chapter, and it's like, hey, some action, some epic adventure. And so it kind of keeps people on the edge of their seat. But maybe a third reason, and this is, and, and this is maybe what I want to camp on a little bit, is this idea that ocean journeys in the ancient world provided a means for readers and those who traveled to understand whether they were under divine punishment, divine justice, or whether they were going to be under divine protection. 
Because in the ancient world, and this is not like our world today, okay? In the ancient world, our world today, you've got the Discovery Channel, you've got Jacques Cousteau, any Jacques Cousteau fans out there, Philippe exiting the Calypso, you know, going under to swim with the whales and, and the calm seas underneath. And you have, we, we have scuba gear. We, there was no scuba gear in the ancient world. You couldn't like snorkel. The ocean, the sea was a boiling cauldron of frothing wickedness and evil. You go out on the ocean, you may as well be sailing on death. Sailors were the most superstitious people in the world because every time they got in a boat, they never expected to make it to port unless the gods helped them. Because it was crazy out there. You didn't know what was, it was just a bunch of sea monsters and waves that could swallow your boat. And so in the ancient world, this idea that when you went out on, a, on an ocean voyage, this, was, this would have been an opportunity for the powers that be to really uh, execute justice on you. You were at the whims of the, of the winds and the waves and, the, and any divine will that might come upon you. But here in Acts, Paul, what we see, and Luke wants to make this clear, Paul has already been somewhat acquitted by the governor and the king of Israel being sent to Rome, and Luke wants to make it clear that God is also going to deliver Paul, that he's not an evil person. In the ancient world, if you were writing a story and you put an evil person on a boat, it's like, dun, dun, dun. You're ready, you're ready for the divine justice to come. But in this case, Luke wants to make it clear that Paul is going to receive the protection that comes from God. And so he does. All right? So this is why, this is why you get 100 pages on the parasewer system, or, or in this case, why you get a whole chapter on simply a sea voyage with language that you might, what's the difference between gear and tackle? I mean, still, to, you know, whatever. It simply provides the drama to understand that God is going to protect His witnesses, the people who bear witness of Him. God will protect them. All right, you guys with me? All right, so that's the first reason why Paul would include. So why does he do, why does he do this? Why, why this information? But what we find is that this divine protection comes in a number of ways. And one of the ways is from an unlikely ally. Sometimes when we're reading our Bibles, and I don't know if you're like, if you're like me, sometimes when I'm reading my Bible, I can fly over stuff pretty quickly especially when there's a lot of names and there's a lot of places that are unpronounceable and I don't know where they are, and this is why I might have a map, okay? But um, there's a curious insertion at the beginning of chapter 27 of the centurion who is given charge over the apostle Paul. There's centurions all over, all over the Bible, okay? Centurions are Roman soldiers who are over 100 soldiers, okay? The tribunes are over 10 centurions, but the, the, this centurion is named. Look at 27.1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Now, they, Luke decides to name the centurion, and, and, and uh, the centurion is going to take a number of other prisoners, and we don't know how like kind of seedy the rest of these guys are, but it's Paul and these other prisoners, 
and they're going to go to Rome under the charge of, of Julius the centurion and his men. Now, there's a few little clues we have about who this guy is, or at least the profile of what he would have been like, okay? Now, he, his name is Julius, and the fact that he's only named with a single name, see, Romans were oftentimes named with two names, right? This one is only named with one, which tells us a couple things. One, his name is Julius, which means that probably he was born at a time when either Julius or Augustus was the emperor, which is about maybe 30 years before this event takes place. Also, that he's only named with one name, and it is only when you are an older person that you are named by a single name. When you're younger, you're usually named by two or three names, but if you're named, you're usually a little advanced in age. And so this centurion is a little older. It also implies that because he is named, that he would have been a Roman citizen. You're like, how do you get, well, that's, look, you read the ancient world, the, the literature from the ancient world, these are all clues that we can have, and probably what Luke is trying to give, that, that Paul has been given into the charge of a Roman centurion who, who is an older man, a Roman citizen, and it tells us a little bit maybe about why he is so kind to the apostle Paul. Look at verse 20, in chapter 27, verse 3. The next day we put in at Sidon, just a little bit above Caesarea, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. So this is really interesting because Julius lets Paul go into town, probably with another soldier, no chains, just go into town and be cared for by the Christians in that town. Julius allows that to happen. And it's pro there's a number of reasons why. One is as a fellow Roman citizen, Julius is probably giving Paul a little bit of leeway. Like, hey, you're not like the rest of these dirty prisoners here. You're, I get it that you, I see you as different. I'm going to let you go into town and be cared for. It means I don't have to feed you either. So that's because that's what he would have had to do. But also there is some in the biblical record, especially in the Gospels, whenever someone is named, oftentimes it's because the Gospel writer wants you to know that this person has come to faith. And so there is a good chance that this Roman centurion, because later on what we're going to see is that the centurion, if you look in verse, um, look, look ahead a little bit. In verse, this is in chapter 27, verse 41. After they strike, after 14 days of being at sea, tossed by the storm, no, with cloud cover, no stars, no sun, no moon, 14 days, they come to the end of their journey. And in verse 41, it says, striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground, the bow struck and remained unmovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. Now the soldiers are like, the ship's going down, what do we do? We're going to have to swim for our lives, but we've got all these prisoners, what do we do with the prisoners? Well, they want to slaughter them, they want to just kill them. Drown them, get rid of them, because we're, we're soldiers, I, what are we going to do? Let's just get rid of these guys. But it says in verse 43, but the centurion, our friend Julius, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship, and so it was that all were brought safely to land. You know, 
you know that if you've ever been given instructions on an airplane, like in case of a water landing, you ever been on an airplane where they're like, in case of a water landing, you know, use the flotation device. I had a friend who flew on a private jet, and uh, the captain came in, small, small cabin, the captain got down, and he was like, all right, guys, hey, we're going to fly, and just in case, just so you guys know, just in case we have to crash land, we're all dead, okay? But on the off chance that you survive, there's this, your seat floats, okay? But just, just so you know, so we get that little pep talk before the flight. You don't get that on like Southwest, even on Southwest with a little humor, you don't get that kind of humor. That's a little dark. But maybe on a private flight, try it sometime. Anyway, but if you've ever like get, given the instruction like, hey, if you can swim, go for land. If you can't, wait for the boat to break apart and grab onto something that floats. Like you know you're in trouble. But it seems like there's divine, that God is still looking out for these folks. So Julius is favorable to Paul, maybe even a believer. Not so much a believer that he'll actually take his advice earlier in the trip. Because earlier in the trip, Paul's like, they come to their port. In verse 9, it says, Since much time had passed, the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. One of these Jewish holidays where you, have to, you fast for it. It was, it was in the fall, and the fast had finished. It was in the fall, and Paul said, hey, um, I, I, think that, I think it's a little too late to go out on the open sea. We're coming to winter. And Paul's like, I perceive that we're going to lose a lot if we do this, that the voyage is going to be with injury and much loss, not only the cargo of the ship, but also our lives. But the centurion, it says in 2711, paid more attention to the pilot of the boat and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. So Julius likes Paul, but doesn't like him enough to actually listen to his advice. So there, so there we get a little bit of color about who Julius is. Okay, now here, hearing that end, now, now that we know the end of the story, they all make it, okay? Tension's off. What I want to do is I want us to ask this question and land on this as we kind of finish this morning and ask this question, what do you do when you're a follower of Jesus and you know that the boat you're on is going down? What do you do when you are a follower of Jesus and you know the direction that you and your traveling companions are going in is not going to end well? That you know wreck is inevitable? Because even if you've never been in that situation physically, or that you may never be in that situation physically, on a boat or on a plane, I mean, we joke about all those, those instructions, maybe you'll never be in a situation like that. Although I do think it's, it, it is good for us to, to think ahead of what we might do in a situation like that. But to understand that metaphorically, we are on, in our culture, in our world, we are on a sinking ship. And it does not matter who our president is, it doesn't matter what our legislators say or do. There is a heart of a human being. The heart of humanity is dark. We see it in other people. We see it easily in other people, right? But we also, in our quieter moments, we see it in ourselves. That as much as we are capable of loving people, loving God, loving others, that that's a capacity that God, obviously we've been made in God's image, and that's a capacity that we, that we lean into on our better days, but we also know in our quieter moments that we have dark thoughts, that there's a darkness in us, that there's a darkness that, if, if left unchecked, 
by the grace of God, will overcome us. And not only us, but our neighbors and our neighborhood and our, and our state and our world. A darkness so dark, so consuming, that God would note He had to send His Son to be a light in that darkness. To cleanse the stains that are left by that. If you've never been on a sinking ship, literally, we are on a sinking ship that is due for wreckage. And the question I think just this morning for us to reflect on is, what do we do when we find ourselves in a culture, in a world, on a ship that is just clearly on a path to wreck? What do we do? I just want to look at what, what, what does Paul do here and see if it might give us a little bit of a path forward on this. I think the first thing, just one of the things to, to note, and we've already seen this, but the first thing that Paul does is, as a follower of Jesus on a boat that is, that is destined to wreck, he offers warning. He offers warning, and we already read it in 27.9. Much time had passed, the voyage was now dangerous, even be, the fast was already over. Paul advised them, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss. Not only the cargo of the ship, but also our lives. Like, to say, what we're doing is reckless. What we're doing is dangerous. Paul, you're so judgmental. You're so judgmental. You're such a judger of people, right? Why can't you just live and let live? Well, because people's lives are at stake. So the first thing, as a follower of Jesus, the first thing Paul says is, look, and, and Paul's a seasoned seafarer. In the book of Acts, there's multiple sea voyages that Paul goes on. It's, he's no stranger to the ocean and to sea voyage and to travel. And he says, look, we're already deep into the fall. And we don't know what's coming. This is dangerous. And it is interesting that the captain of the ship and the pilot, as well as the centurion, probably all for different reasons, they, the captain and the pilot probably want to get paid. They want to get all this grain to, 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 uh, to, to Italy, to Rome, so they can get paid. The centurion wants to get these prisoners off so he can be done. Let's get this over with. First thing he does is he offers warning. As a follower of Jesus, as a follower of Jesus, it's still, it's still on us to continue to gracefully and truthfully offer warning to our culture. At our own risk, we ignore God. If God is in this direction and we are facing in this direction, there is a warning, and the warning in Scripture is, hey, turn and face God. It's the word repent. Turn from this direction. Reorient towards God. Turn. There's danger by not being oriented towards God. It's a simple warning, but sometimes we forget. Sometimes we forget that people actually listen to us. That sometimes the Holy Spirit is out there in the world and God is relying on us to simply say, hey, that's not a good idea. That's not a good idea.
Eventually they set out. They struggle to get out of port. The northeast wind comes and tosses them as they start to jettison the cargo. It's 27.18. It says that the storm for 14 days obscures the sun and the moon. I don't know if you've ever been in a storm. We in Southern California, we're like, if it rains for a day, we're like, oh, the skies are so gloomy, right? 14 days of cloud cover. Now, if you're on land, that's a little dreary, right? But if you're on a boat, that's completely disorienting because you navigate by the stars and by the sun and the moon, and you know that the sun comes up in the east and it sets in the west, and you know by, by, what you, by the tools of the trade that you can navigate using the stars, but you have none of that and you are completely disoriented, not to mention completely seasick. I mean, it says, it, it says in, um, in verse 21 that since they had been with, it says in my Bible, it says since they've been without food for a long time. In Greek, it actually says because they've had no appetite. It's not that they've ran out of food on the ship. It's that everybody's puking their guts out because they're seasick. They've been tossed in a storm for 14 days. They can't see which way's up. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Two weeks, no sun, no moon, being rolled by the sea, hearing the creaking of the boat, wondering which, if the next wave was going to finally be the last creak that snaps the timbers. 14 days. What is a follower of Jesus to do in a hopeless situation like that? Paul says this in verse 21. After they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, well, first of all, he gives a little bit of I told you so. Okay. Now, I'm not saying we should aim at I told you so. But there is, there, is great <laughs> there is great satisfaction in vindication, is there not? And who among us has not been a little bit happy when, they, when we've been vindicated, even if things have gone wrong? So I'll give Paul a little pass on this. He says, uh, you should have listened to me and not set seal from Crete and encouraged this injury and loss. All right, pass that. That's one sentence of much. So that's, if you're going to give an I told you so, you've got five seconds of I told you so, and then what you need to do is you need to give hope. If you are a follower of Jesus and you are on a sinking ship, a ship on its way to wreckage, your job is to give hope. That's your job. That's your job. That's my job. Everybody who loves Jesus, you give warning, maybe a little I told you so, Okay, but then you lay hope, then you turn on the afterburners on hope. You pour out hope. Listen to what Paul says. Verse 22, I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, only the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong, to whom I worship. And he said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted to you all those who sail with you. So take heart. I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. 
but we have to run aground on some island. I mean, I love what Paul does. You can tell, like, an angelic visitation. Paul has probably been praying. He's been pleading for this boat 14 days. Angel comes, stands beside him and says, look, you've got to make it to Rome, Paul. You've got to make it to Rome. You're supposed to stand before Caesar. I think there's a number of things about Paul. Paul knew who he was. He knew what his calling was. And he knew, look, I have more work to do. We're not going to die. And if I have work to do, you all have to come with me. You all have to make it. And God is going to preserve your life. Now, here's the, I, I know, I suppose it might be easier to do if an angel does come stand before you and you can relay that message to the people around you. You might be saying, look, Pastor Craig, I've, I've not had an angel come stand beside me and tell me and give me assurance that somebody's not going to die. Like, that, that's pretty hardcore stuff. But I will say this, God has done something for you. God has done something for you. And when you find yourself on a boat that's, that's on its way to wreckage, metaphorically or literally, when you're in a group of people and you know that it's on, you're, they're on the way to wreckage, you're in a culture that's on its way to wreckage, what do you do? You tell them what God has done for you. You tell them what God has done for you. You tell them what God is like. God is a God who has a plan for your life. He's got a plan for my life. God over, and I know that He wants to bring fruition. And so I, in the even if you're more like the three Hebrew children in the furnace that are saying, even if you do throw us in the furnace, we're still going to worship God. Even if you're, even if it's look, even if He does take our lives, I'm thankful for what He's given to me. He's done so much in my life. He can deliver us, and we can have faith that He will. We might have to run aground on some island. <laughs> I love the way He ends it. It's like, there's hope, there's hope, but we've got to crash first. We've got to crash first. We've got to crash because there's people on this boat who can't swim, and how are they going to make it if they don't have wreckage to float in on? <laughs> like, that, I mean, that's a horrible thing to say, but we've got to crash first. He says, don't be afraid. He says, take heart. He says, have faith in God. God knows that we're here. I think it's so interesting. It's interesting in verse 20, he says, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. It was almost like no one knew they were out there and no one was coming to get them. And Paul says, hey, in the middle of the night, a messenger from God came and stood beside me. You know, who's, you know who knows that we're here? God knows we're here. God knows we're here and God loves us because God is a, God is a father who wants to have compassion on his children. He knows we're here and he wants, he desires to make himself known in this world and he wants, he wants to intervene in our situation. And he wants us to ask and call, out, call upon him. What do followers of Jesus do when you're on a boat and you know it's headed for disaster? Warn, but give hope. Give hope. Give as much hope as you possibly can. And then when you've given hope, eat something. I'm not joking. <laughs> I mean, it sounds kind of funny, but that's what Paul does. 
That's what Paul does. He says in verse 33, on the, la- on the last of these days, he urges them to take some food. It will give you strength. Not a hair of your head will perish. And in verse 35, when he said these things, he took bread and he gave thanks to God in the presence of all and he broke it and he distributed it out. Man, what does that sound like? I mean, is it the Last Supper? Is it the Lord's Supper? There's a lot of debate among commentators about whether Paul is doing the Lord's Supper. You know what he's doing? He's He's simply following his pattern of gathering around anybody who's there. Let's just share a meal together. This could be our last one. This could be our last one because after this, we're going to throw all the grain overboard. Let's take some of that grain. Let's make some bread. Let's eat something because we're going to have to swim for our lives. But before we eat this bread, let's give thanks. Just give thanks. I think that's one thing. If you're on a sinking ship, if you're on a boat that's going to nowhere, if you're on a boat that is on its way to wreckage, if you're in a culture that has lost its way, here's one thing you can do. Just remind people you got something to be thankful for. You got somebody who loves you. Even if your whole family has disowned you, I'll love you. You got somebody who loves you. You got a God who knows your name. You got a God who knows who you are. You have a God who has a plan for your life. If you're on a boat bound for wreckage, you tell people, look, let's just take a moment and let's just give thanks for the things that we can be thankful for. Gratitude. Gratitude oftentimes, well, I would say this, gratitude always precedes a situation getting better. You don't wait for something to get better before gratitude comes. Gratitude precedes a bad situation. And if you want a pathway through hope, if you want to hope, then give thanks, whatever the circumstances might be. Do it around a meal, an invitation to a table to share something together. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. You know, as we, look, I, I would just urge you, um, if you watch the news, just take a break. <laughs> Whatever channel you watch, like, take a break. <sighs> take some time to give thanks for what God has done in your life and the life of the people around you. Take some time to gather some people, maybe some people around that you wouldn't normally gather around for a meal. Just gather them around. Just offer thanks to God for what he's done in your life, in their life. Just a mid-season Thanksgiving. I think we're due for a mid-season Thanksgiving, right? Thanksgiving's in November, but we need to do it. Like, gather people around. Do this. We're on a, we are on a boat that is going down, everybody. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to watch. And there can be times where we feel like we are out of control of larger forces around us. Give thanks to God for what he can do and ask him to intervene. Do it around a table with some good food and ask that God might make himself known in our presence.